Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, I am excited to continue our series here at Ed Council Insights called Leaders and the Law. What we want to do with this series is explore some concepts at or near the intersection of school leadership and school law. The idea is to bring a variety of leader voices to the table to talk about school leadership and public school advocacy. So for this edition of Leaders in the Law, I am very happy that we are joined by Mr. Roger Smith, a recent retiree and former superintendent who served in a number of leadership positions, including the Massa Executive Committee, among many others. Roger is an accomplished school leader who was a superintendent in Northwest Missouri prior to stepping away recently. Although he's retired, Roger is still engaged in the cause of public education as an advocate for public schools. So with that intro, I would like to introduce Mr. Roger Smiths. Thank you for being here, Roger. Thank you, Mr. Martin. Uh, very grateful for the opportunity and excited to uh, join these Ed Council podcasts. I am particularly happy, Roger, to have you here to talk about the topic of school leadership and public education advocacy. You know, let's start with a little bit of background about what you've been up to lately. Well, in the spirit of uh, education and educational leadership, uh, you know, we're always thrown curveballs and a life-changing curveball came my way. Uh, recently, and and uh, an immediate retirement uh, was the best scenario possible. I'm uh, currently in a battle to overcome cancer, uh, receiving chemotherapy treatments. They are going well, and I thank uh, everybody for their thoughts and prayers uh, for healing during this time. So now in my spare time, uh, I'm really trying to stay engaged in the closing weeks of the legislative session and, and the timely topics that uh, those bring about. Uh, affecting Missouri public ed. Well, no shortage of issues in that category, that's for sure. You know, Roger, for our listeners uh, who may not be completely familiar with your background, can you give us just a little bit of info about your path as a school leader? Well, I'm a strong believer that, uh, you know, for most, there are leadership qualities that are in play for every teacher and every coach. Uh, the ability to stand before a classroom or, or in front of a team and lead them requires a greater understanding of a subject, a set of skills, understandings, and they require a leadership belief that you can impart on those children, on those students, and on those players. My journey began in the classroom as a social studies teacher and on the court as a basketball coach. Uh, 19 years ago, I was given the opportunity to become an administrator in the Lawson School District, just northeast of the Kansas City Metro. And 18 years of those uh, experiences were in the central office, seven as an assistant superintendent, 11 as a superintendent. It's truly a great community. Uh, I still live there. I love serving that district and the patrons and the kids. And I know that there's a lot of other examples of what I believe uh, is a great school district in Lawson. I know there's a lot of other examples around the state throughout. Well, let me ask you this, you know, you and I have both seen a lot of different styles of educational leaders and, and really different philosophies. Let me ask you how you would describe Roger Schmidt's leadership philosophy in particular in the school context. Well, I believe that everyone's philosophy is shaped by two key factors. Uh, one from those who have influenced you, your mentors, so to speak, and the second is the surroundings uh, that confront you or support you in your daily journey. For me, I was blessed in both regards. I was able to glean attributes of leadership from wonderful mentors uh, who were established in high quality districts, including my own. That removed a great deal of pressure of having to overcome significant op obstacles or, or learning the hard way, so to speak. You know, with that said, my belief is shaped uh, around a leadership quote attributed to President Dwight Eisenhower, who said, uh, leadership is the art of getting others to do what you want them to do because they believe it's the right thing to do. And that's not manipulation. 
but rather it's getting others to work with you to believe they have ownership uh, in what we do in your district. And those who believe they have ownership tend to have a greater sense of pride and self-worth in what we do. Our efforts daily and long-term should promote and support that sense of ownership at all levels. Two other beliefs that I've been anchored to is, is one that ideas have to be good enough to outlast you. Ours is a business of short tenure in, in leadership positions. My experience was not typical. Uh, you know, my desire really was to be a superintendent at Lawson in the same district for 15 plus years. But, uh, you know, if, if you or one of your leaders in your district or buildings has a quality idea that's feasible, you ask the question, will it outlast the originator of that idea? And if so, I'm a firm believer that you develop it, you vet the process, and then you run with the idea supporting that person. You know, how do you support that from a higher altitude level? No different than you support the person. Your leaders who work with you and for you, you trust them. Again, as I had a long career in the same district, uh, you know, working with building principals who were in the same positions for several years, uh, that came a little bit more natural for me. But here's a small example of, of what, I'm, what I'm trying to express beyond ideas is, you know, as a superintendent of a school district, the job does demand for us to be away from the district often and sometimes, you know, at, at inopportune times. But those are short-term departures. And if your leadership doesn't allow you to be comfortably uh, away from the district for that short term, then maybe you need to look in the mirror on what your leadership style is. Because I'm a believer that a district can survive in the short term without you being there. It's a sign that you trust who you work with and they trust you to lead them because you also trust that they'll do the right thing. You know, Roger, uh, you talk about a lot of different aspects of, of leadership there. And it occurs to me as you're talking and, and relating your experience that there's been a lot of change in the time that you've been in the profession. You know, how would you say school leadership itself has changed or has it changed at all in the time that you've been in the profession? You know, Dwayne, I remember uh, being at a regional MASA meeting three or four years ago, and you were talking about a timely topic. And I raised my hand and I, and I said, you know, Dwayne, this, this wasn't an issue 10 years ago. And you chuckled and said, this wasn't an issue two to three years ago. Uh, you know, my dad once told me that change is always going to happen and you can't change that fact. I do believe that the challenges to public education and how they have influenced our offerings are relative to the time in which we live. Our predecessors would tell you that they had change that altered, uh, you know, how they operated and how they led districts. You know, what may seem monumental now in terms of change today may be insignificant uh, in a few years to a future generation, but they will still have some level of change presented to them. For me, two areas of change or challenges for school leadership have been the most impactful, uh, maybe in a negative way, and stressful. First, the idea that education is the landing spot for many programs targeted to improve society, but aren't necessarily a fit for K-12 and that educational setting are not necessarily great change ideas, but they've come about. And unfortunately, you know, from the General Assembly down, they've come about without any adequate funding to, uh, you know, be associated with it. These add-ons to our charge don't necessarily belong in public education, but society, politicians, those who control the purse strings, they view public education as an easy target, in my opinion. Uh, you know, we're always on the defensive, and, and it's easy for those policymakers to see education as a landing spot or a Band-Aid, if you will, one that will do the job uh, without necessarily increasing funding for it. You know, for me, you, you preview the pre-filed bills in December of each General Assembly legislative session, you can get a sense 
that some uh, in, in that arena regard schools as a place that ought to do this, that can provide that, or that can teach this. Then you fast forward to the annual omnibus bills uh, in late April and, and early May that, that close out the sessions now. They get created off of maybe something that people have support for, they know it might get passed, and then they throw all these good intentions on there, uh, but the appropriate funding doesn't accompany it. And so what I believe is, you know, that that is an example, a challenge that existing programs suffer because we have to add on and make do with what we already have. You know, the second challenge I would say that's probably more prevalent than ever is the teacher shortage. You know, the examples I give to others when we talk uh, in and out of public education is a student who's talented in mathematics. You know, prior generations, if that student didn't want to go into architecture or engineering, something along those lines, teaching was a very viable option because it, it would allow them a field to, you know, to impart their knowledge about what they love for math. Today, you know, there's so many other technology avenues that someone talented and advanced in math can seek out if they're not interested in architecture or engineering. Teaching math has probably fallen way down the list. Um, and you know, as a result, that's an example of the teacher shortage becoming really a year-round concern or a year-round focus for school leaders, where personnel season was probably you know, a second semester thought process for many years. I don't think it is now. I think that may be the biggest challenge is personnel season has become a year-round focus. You know, with some of those things that you mentioned and the way it is now, I have to think that it's, it's bound to shape how successful education practitioners uh, approach their work now. And you know, you've been at this for a while and you've seen it for, you know, a long period of time. And you, as you mentioned at the top, you know, you've had strong mentors that, that you leaned on and, and support system within the school there at Lawson. You know, how does it, how's all of this changed how education practitioners go about the work that's uh, before them now? I think the, the big approach uh, or, or the big add-on you know, professional development has always been in play, but these add-ons create a greater demand for timely, focused professional development. And you can look at the classroom level and above, and the nine-month contract requires a greater amount of professional development and peripheral experience outside of what they may have thought teaching would require. You know, this time demand usually mostly occurs at the expense of the individual's time and a lot of time in the summer months. Uh, in and of itself, that may not seem like a detriment for our profession, but, you know, we have to bring in the idea that or, or the focus that low teacher pay is a harsh reality. And many teachers feel obligated to teach summer school or to take a seasonal job to make ends meet. So then how do they fit in that professional development that usually comes along with uh, bills truly agreed to and passed by the, the governor that become law that have you know, professional development requirements of them? I, I think this greater financial insecurity is the biggest challenge to our work approach. You know, do we lose value in what we do when those who could provide greater monetary reward don't value it the way we do? And, and you know, we're, we're so limited uh, in our school districts in Missouri, the way they're funded. It's, it's the foundation formula, ultimately, and it's local tax revenue. And even in this legislative session, there were bills that, uh, you know, were filed that would reduce or freeze assessment values or reduce personal property taxes. And you know, there you have state legislators wanting to control the purse strings of what should be local decisions, but they're out there. And how do we truly get 
a level of understanding at the general assembly level to support our teachers with higher pay because there are greater demands than ever from these add-ons. You know, if we don't see the return for what we do, will we stick with it? If a teacher doesn't see the return, especially in their formative years, their first three to five years in our profession, will they stick to it? What attracts new teachers? You know, initially, it's probably an ideal sense of, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make an impact and make a difference in the lives of children. But if you, you know, with that ideal sense, you have an ability to affect change and to make a difference. You know, they're powerful. Those are powerful motivations, but they're oftentimes intrinsically motivated. You know, you get into this profession and you see the real challenges of the working world. They can eat away at those traits uh, that, that drove you in the first place. And, and, you know, sadly, it can eat away from that desire or, or eat away at that ideal intrinsic motivation that, that was inside that teacher. And we see some you know, talented individuals give up on profession. So when the talent pool is smaller to begin with, you know, so too is the talent pool of tomorrow's educational leaders. And so to me, the teaching shortage is not just at the classroom level that we're worried about. It's also at the building leader and the district leader level. Those are all really, I mean, they're great points. You know, and, and as you're talking about those challenges, I'm thinking through, you know, what does it really take to be a good superintendent now? What does it take to be a good school leader at that level? You know, what are your general thoughts in that regard? You know, for today's practitioners, Roger, what's it, what's it really take to lead a district? I think first and foremost, you know, a superintendent, uh, so to speak, in a small school district in Missouri has to have the ability to wear many hats and to do what it takes, you know, to get the job done, have that mentality. I say that, you know, with a little bit of perspective. I, I don't want, you know, people to misinterpret me to say that I'm just talking about a rural school district with just, you know, four or 500 students. My, my side hobby for many years has been refereeing college basketball and it allowed to take me into the state of Texas every once in a while and develop some great friendships there. And when I would tell them, you know, where I uh, worked at in Lawson and 1200 students, you know, their response usually was my son or daughter goes to a school that has 1200 kids in a grade. So, you know, truthfully with just a handful of schools, districts in Missouri, big enough to, if, if you were asking someone from Texas, you know, Springfield might be considered a bigger school district or Columbia or, you know, St. Charles or whatever it may be. But the high, high majority of our school districts would be considered small, just the way we're structured and set up. So for us, you know, the layers of support within a district are not there most often. There are some districts have multiple assistant superintendents or directors, but most don't have that. Uh, and they're not available you know, to the superintendents in, in general terms. So are you willing to step forward and lead in areas you know, where the stakeholders will find buy-in, but only if you lead them rather than just cheer them on? I, I think uh, you know, it takes a level of empathy, so to speak, to be a, a quality, effective, good school leader because, and the way our system set up is, it does allow for empathy to be developed because, you know, very, very high majority of us would have started out and had a, a, a good year experience, uh, I say year, years of experience in the classroom. And then as a building leader, and then moving to a district leader standpoint. So I think, you know, the opportunity is there, but that first you know, thought is you have to be willing to lead by example. What are, you know, you mentioned some of the different things that you have to kind of think about, but I mean, if you were talking to somebody that was just entering school leadership, you know, what kind of areas, skill sets do you think that they need to really concentrate on developing? 
and you know it seems to me that there's less seasoning time if you will as they move through the ranks these days uh you know what would you encourage them to really concentrate on in terms of skill development you know there's obviously some pieces that i think all superintendents have to have regardless of district size even if you have those levels of support those assistants working with you and i think the first area is finance i think you have to have a, a good understanding of finance just uh, the way that missouri school finance is built you know again the superintendent in all likelihood is the cfo in most of our school districts and regardless you know of, of that level of involvement you have to have uh, a vision of what school finance was yesterday, uh, what it is for you in the now, and where it's going to be, you know, not just in uh, a year or two, but in three to five years. And if you can always look out ahead and have that vision uh, of school finance for your district, I think that first key point is going to allow you to develop a lot of trust with all of your stakeholders. They're going to see that someone is in this position that knows what they're doing and is doing it in a fashion that won't put the district or the taxpayers in a spot of concern. Uh, I've always been a believer that you, know, you stay in front of that and for lack of a better term, it keeps those who work with you and work for you from developing any sort of panic. I, it just always felt, you know, in the job, if that those should be pieces that the classroom teacher shouldn't have to worry about. And if we do our job and we take away that worry, then they're able to focus on what they do best and what they were hired to do, which then in turn allows us not to have to worry so much or be involved as much in what they do, because there are certainly definite roles that work with each other and when they work with each other without any level of worry for finance I, I think we're all better off you know an example of what concerns me for newer superintendents uh, and I, I do see this quite often and I'm sure I was in that mold early on as well but I was again very fortunate to look up to some mentors who were actively involved at the district level, at the regional level, and some at the state level even, you know, let's look at our state adequacy target. It's been around for 16 years in this formula that, that we call the new formula still. Uh, but, it's, but it's been a formula that's been in place much longer than its predecessor. But the state adequacy target within the formula has only increased 4% over those 16 years. Well, obviously, we say, well, why is that important? There, there's a quick answer. You know, it costs a lot more than 4% more to educate a child successfully than it did in 2006. So why aren't we advocating more for improved funding? You know, we've allowed the, ourselves to follow what the General Assembly has said. And I know we fought as much as we can, but, I, but I'm that one rallying that we need to continue to fight more and more in the right way because, you know, as the law reads now, it's what is appropriated essentially uh, allows the legislators to say they fully funded the formula. And the SAT just has not seen any growth, especially in the last few years and won't see much through 2024. You know, we have to, we have to advocate for that improved funding. That should always be a, always be a priority. And what I see from some newer superintendents is, and maybe they're overwhelmed or, or they're simply just satisfied to take the approach that would say, you know, just tell me what I'm, I'm going to get and I'll make it work. To me, that is, that is a, 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 an approach that is, is totally wrong because we have to be the ones, even if we're not liked, uh, in Jeff City, we have to be the ones that are pushing for improved funding through the formula. It takes knowledge. It takes knowledge to understand how the formula works. And it takes knowledge to understand what that effect can be for you, you know, two, three, five years out. And when we can embrace that, 
develop that knowledge, our teachers within our own school districts, you know, they will see that and they need to see that and believe that we are knowledgeable uh, and that we're willing to fight for them for proper funding. And again, that kind of goes back to ownership. I think, I think teachers, when they see that you're engaged in that part of your job as a high priority, you're doing it for them. And that sense of ownership starts to develop for all of us. You know, that's interesting, Roger, because as you were talking through that, I'm, I'm sitting here going, you know, as much as I have tried to be a good observer of school leadership over the years, I don't know that I really, and when we talk about how that's changed and the, more of an emphasis on instructional leadership versus financial leadership and, and how that's evolved and everything, I don't think it really occurred to me until you were talking that, you know, the superintendent is the one person that really pulls that together in terms of the vision, you know, what the board goals are, what your teachers want to try to accomplish, you know, pedagogically, what your parents are demanding. None of that happens without financial leadership and that, and the superintendent has to be the one to step into that breach and say, okay, this is, this is either how we make it happen or, you know, we, we may have to tamp down our ambitions a little bit and temper those with the financial realities. And I don't, I don't suppose until you were kind of talking through that, that uh, it really occurred to me how much that really it's probably the superintendent's the only one that really understands all that goes with trying to accomplish those things. And it's a delicate balance. I can say that, uh, you know, for 11 years, just shy of that, being the superintendent, you know, there were still some ways, methods that, that I latched onto, even in my latter years, as the experience unfolded, that, you know, just really came to play that I needed to bring more understanding at the teacher level. And so, you know, something like creating a roundtable for the superintendent to bring in, you know, eight to 10 teachers and other staff members to vet processes or develop ideas and, and offer feedback. Because what I found was most beneficial from that process was you're talking your message, which we normally would talk to our cabinet or building leaders. And then they take that message into their building. I was trying to not circumvent or go around any of those groups by any means. I, I'm a firm believer in the channel of communication, but I also felt something like a round table allowed me the opportunity to say my direct message to a group of classroom teachers, classroom leaders, knowing that those in my district, and in this case, 10 people, would take that message and they would talk that message. And I really believe there, there was some great growth, even though you know, my retirement cut that ability short. It, there was some great growth uh, in knowing that I was hearing talking points, you know, feedback from the hallways and from the classrooms. And I really felt like that there was a better sense of oneness within the district. There was a better understanding of this is why we can or why we can't do this. And turning it the other way, it also allowed me with, uh, you know, boards that change with every election, it allowed me the opportunity to provide the board, you know, some reassurance that it just wasn't the superintendent sitting in front of them and saying what they wanted to say. It, it was also something that, you know, ideas that had been proposed and refined and, and explained away sometimes even to the board, but, but to say that was a message that was also coming to them with great understanding at the classroom level. You know, Roger, you've had a little bit of a chance to step away from the desk, kind of reflect on a few things. And I'm, I, and not that you weren't constantly thinking uh, about these things before, but, you know, uh, I want to ask you this, knowing what you know now and to go back. And if you were to sit down a young Roger Schmitz and, and say, hey, look, here is what you really need to know about school leadership and how it really works. What would you say? You know, that time away has been valuable, 
you know, the, the first thing I would offer real quick is, uh, and it, it probably leads us off into some other questions, and, and I certainly don't want to uh, go off on a tangent just yet, but that short time away has not, not just as a superintendent, but a, a dad uh, as students uh, still in school has said, and, and I was talking to some teachers just last week at a ball game where, where our kids were playing. And I said, you know, our teachers, I believe, and in, and in all districts, I believe this, the communication efforts are very good. But we are always challenged with, are they engaging? And we don't, we don't control that engagement, so to speak. And now, you know, being 10 weeks retired, I can say, falling into that role of being a parent, I still see communications coming to me. It's been a challenge as a parent, and, I use, and I'm trying to develop empathy here to say, how can a school district communicate better? And it's not about communicating more. It's about engaging parents that they are going to receive that information and act upon it. And, you know, we, I think we all know in our own school district experience, we would see the communications that might be somewhat mass communications going out to parents, but we wouldn't ever see at my level anyway, the engagement of those parents. And I see that as a, a unique opportunity or unique insight in my short time away that, you know, that's, that's become real important to me to say, how can we engage Parents, not so much are we giving all the messages that we need to give classroom expectations, progress, upcoming events, you know, timely topics. I think we do a great job at that. How do we truly bring parents to the table in their busy lives to find priority in what we're sending home? You know, there's a lot of headaches I don't miss, but that, that's been a valuable piece. So you asked the question, you know, what, what would I tell myself years younger? I would say this, please keep in mind that some days are excruciatingly slow. Even the weeks can be very slow, but ultimately, and here we are at the end of another school year, the months and the year fly by. So try not to get too caught up in some of the things that happen on a single day basis. We used to always say in our leadership group if there was a problem that uh, we were faced with and it was just really you know problems occur everywhere I believe that the best solutions are found closest to where the problem occurs and we all have policies and procedures that emphasize that channel of communication sometimes you know they they feel elevated and they feel oh they may really cause us a lot of grief and we would always look around the room and say, hey, you know, there's a lot of places that would love to have our problems. And I think the places and the advice I would give to a younger person is don't fester the problem. Bring the people in that need to find the best solution and then move on. Focus on the solution. The places that struggle the most are the ones that keep allowing the problem to fester. Uh, you know, the months and the year, they fly by. They really do. Trust is earned over that time. Trust is, you know, trust may be lost in a single day for some uh, stakeholders. It may be lost over a week's time when this comes into, onto your plate and you have to deal with it. But ultimately, the months and the year are going to fly by and, and you earn that trust. So I would give advice to a newer person is let that trust develop from how you handle those situations. Let the ideas develop, but support those who will develop the ideas. The ideas that come to your plate don't have to become your ideas. You can let the developers develop that idea. You're going to have your role you know, of, of helping to vet the process, see if it's financially feasible, see if it's good for your, your district. Uh, but to truly have the best ideas, it takes trust and it takes relationship. You know, a beautiful result of my diagnosis is that I've reconnected with many acquaintances throughout my career. And I've always known that we're in a people business. 
I believe I, I did make it a focus you know, during my career, but I could have been a better listener. I could have been more sympathetic. And when possible, if you can be empathetic, be there in an empathetic fashion for those who need you. And I think all of those pieces, listening, being more sympathetic, you know, you, don't, you always don't have to have the answer that people want to hear. You don't always have to be agreeable, but if you listen first, if you are sympathetic to the idea, and then you trust the ones that are bringing the idea to you, I really think in the long term, you'll have much more enjoyment in the job. Excellent. Yeah, I think that is true on so many different levels, not just in school leadership, but I'm just sitting here as you're saying it, thinking as, you know, just part of the team that I'm here at Ed Council, part of being part of my family and being a father, all of those things that you just described become so, so critical. And the more you reflect on them, the more important they become. You know, I want to shift gears with you a little bit, Roger, about where we are in public education and uh, in particular in Missouri and with public schools. And it seems to me that there are a lot of, of misperceptions out there about who we really are and what we do and, and even how we do it. What do you believe is, are some of the most common misperceptions that you think the public has about school leaders, public school leaders? I think it's a general umbrella statement uh, that applies across society. You know, currently, society has a greater general disregard for authority and specifically a distrust for those in authority, maybe than ever before. You know, and that, that's not just speaking about Missouri school leaders. That's going in all realms, all levels of government. You know, those who feel wronged are most likely what I call keyboard warriors on a social media platform. And social media is the ever abundance of kindling for a fire, so to speak. You know, so the, the misconceptions that we don't care or that our policies and our procedures are unfair and insensitive, you know, they're real. Even if they're not, they're real by perception because we will not have any ability to control social media. And some have a belief of get out in front of it. You know, I, I'm also a believer that you can still get out in front of something but a string or a text thread can be hijacked really quickly and it's no longer your idea. So it's a very slippery slope, but I think that's where the most common misperceptions uh, come from is uh, we, we truly are at, a, at a, a different level of a general distrust for authority overall, not just school authority. So how do school leaders tackle that? I mean, what, what uh, can be done to at least work on changing misperceptions like that? I wish I had the, uh, you know, the golden answer here. As um, do I'm we all. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just going to offer something that's personal for me uh, in, in retrospect. And you know, some of this was, uh, you know, feedback given to me, you know, when you, when you do retire and you do have some, some uh, challenging pieces with that, where people come back and, and reacquaint themselves. And, and it's, it's a wonderful process to, to go through, but it's allowed me to look back at one key thing. And I think personally, and I would offer this to anybody, you know, going into the role of a superintendent is you have got to display integrity at all times. And in the solution that you want to find for, a situation, maybe a parent has come to you through that channel of communication. They need to know that you have integrity. If, you know, they're probably going to disagree with you on the issue. And then most likely at the end, we're all going to have to dis uh, agree to disagree, so to speak. Uh, you know, uh, another lawyer told me once that in some type of arbitration, if all sides are a little bit unsatisfied, it was probably a good process. When, when I would talk to somebody who would come into my office about an issue and ultimately would know maybe we can't agree or maybe they would find my solution unacceptable uh, or not likable. They couldn't bring my integrity into the question. 
And I think having that first and foremost and displaying that in what you say is what you will do, I think that's very key to finding good solutions and changing some of those, you know, misperceptions, so to speak, because here I, I believe is reality and we need to capitalize on this reality. The reality I believe is that within our own communities, locally and even regionally, to some, our patrons believe that we have good school districts in a lot of parts of Missouri. If you ask patrons, why did you move to this community? They probably will tell you, we moved here for the schools. There are a lot of very good school districts in the state. And so people are moving or living, staying in those communities for the school districts, for their children. If the superintendent from the top and the board as well display integrity that they can see, if that can't be questioned, I think that goes a long way of working through some of the misperceptions. And you earn that trust again, you know, through those good efforts. We need to capitalize on that belief and reward it and continue to, uh, you know, to strive to earn that trust with our efforts because, uh, you know, when we lose that value, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to earn that back. So I don't, I don't have a magic answer for that, but I do believe that, that that can be a strong foundation if people truly believe, hey, I'm going in to talk to this person and they have integrity we don't need to question that, then, then they're probably going to have a little bit more open mind of the solution you're trying to find. You know, Roger, from my point of view, you've always been a very positive influence. And I think educators as a group tend to be optimistic, even idealistic at times. There are days when it almost seems like idealism in the education community, the public education community, has been substantially diminished. What do you think leaders in the education community can do, if anything, about that? I think we have to continue to focus on the why. You know, you've, you've heard some inspirational speakers say you have to find your why. I'm a big believer in that. The why still includes, you know, for me, the idealistic notions that educators make a difference. Because in reality, they do. Uh, you know, that ideal sense that we can change the world because we do, you know, I firmly believe that still exists. The proof uh, is not just in the classroom, Dwayne. It's also with our secretaries, our cooks, our bus drivers, our maintenance staff, because, you know, we care how, how great of a feeling I would always have. And, and one of my last few days on the job was walking through our elementary building and, and, uh, you know, encountered a, a little kindergartner walking down the hall to the office. She was probably knee high to a grasshopper. And before I could ask her how she was doing that day, she just waved without saying a word and smiled up at me. And, and it gave me a refreshed sense for that day of the why. And, you know, the reality is, is for, for some school leaders, as a superintendent, you may fly at a, at a 30,000 foot view uh, most often, but how many students would you ask in retrospect, even when they're 30 years old, you know, who, who made an impact? It's a teacher. It's a secretary. It's a cook. It's a custodian who in some way, shape or fashion helped further that person along in their journey. So we have to continue to focus on the why, because the why will always bring us back to the reasons why we still care. And if we can keep that in perspective, um, you know, I, I think that that will always help us feel better about ourselves. And when we feel better about ourselves, I think it's natural for others to feel better about us. Good stuff there, Roger. Um, let me ask you this. I, you know, we were talking about public education advocacy and, you know, public schools and the importance of public schools. Let me ask the question this way. What do you think it means to be an advocate for Missouri public schools? That question and the answers to it are probably now in this, uh, you know, this phase of my life are probably where my strongest desire lies. 
you know, how can I advocate for public schools, specifically focused on public education in Missouri? It's still the great equalizer in the United States. You know, it's a system that allows for everyone to have a chance. We need to firmly hold on to that belief. I, I think the, you know, what it means to be an advocate for public schools in Missouri is, you know, that we believe that the greatest among us may currently be the least among us. And public education provides that venue to take that person and move them along to help them achieve what they want to be. It, it, it is unlike any other system in America or in the world. And I, I think it takes a person, you know, that has that ideal or, or that skill set to make the world a better place to truly make education greater. And we have to find ways to advocate for that because what better reasons to advocate for public education when you're saying this is about our future and this is about a future for everyone. There's no exclusions. And that to me is a very powerful statement. You know, Roger, do you think that we're doing enough in the public education community? to advance the cause of public education? And if not, you know, how can we do, do better? You know, in my years of experience, we've tried many approaches uh, to work for the cause of public education, specifically with the General Assembly. We've, we've probably tried to overtly work too much with them. Uh, it's not a us against them mentality. Some may believe that it is, it's not. But sometimes we've felt backed in a corner, so we've been attacking. There, our, our efforts have not been as successful as they need to be. As, as a good friend of mine, also a current superintendent, once said, you know, and I bring back to funding a lot because it does drive what we're able to do and, and takes away a lot of worry or adds a lot of worry, whichever way it goes. But this friend once said, you know, only in Missouri do we not have enough money for public education, both when times are bad and when the economy is real good. And I would say that that's an accurate statement, especially over the time since the Great Recession, you know, we've seen a comeback of the economy, but we haven't seen a great influx by any means of, of money into public education. I don't think our advocacy has been as successful as it needs to be. I think it can be improved. I think we can all agree on that. My worry is, is that sometime in the last 20 years that public education has become politicized. And it's most likely, in my opinion, tied to the creation of term limits. Term limits have only increased the power of the political party uh, because the dollars of the party hold the keys to the next job mentality for a person wanting to stay in a political career. You know, I know that there would be a lot of disagreement with me, but when you come into the General Assembly as a representative and you're all of a sudden looking at two facts, one, you can only be there at a maximum of eight years if your constituency reelects you three more terms. And second, there are a lot more representatives than there are senators. So if the next stop is to be a senator, there is a lot less opportunity or less seats to further your political career. And you're most likely going to be more inclined to do what the party tells you so that you can get that next job mentality. We need to change the narrative at the General Assembly level. We need to bring that narrative to our local communities and within the local communities with a pointed focus to the voters. Because in a lot of cases, they do not, the voters do not hear our message of what public education provides for that community. I think if, if we were in a polling type situation and we polled local voters in districts getting ready to vote for a representative in the primary or the general election, if we threw out key talking points that the candidate was throwing out there, they would have a strong sense of why they're voting for that person or why they're voting for someone else. If we threw out things in the public education realm that they, uh, that contains messages that they haven't heard, they probably wouldn't be able to give us affirmation that they've heard any of that from their representative. In layman's terms, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of things that the representatives and the senators do 
in their voting practices that probably don't represent their constituents as much as it does represent what the party wants on a national level. So my idea would be we need to come forward with a narrative that this is the show me state. Okay, nothing new, right? Uh, but we've heard that growing up, especially you know, this is the show me state. You have to show me. You know, it's a straightforward saying, and I think our our, our general assembly members, through the influences that are placed upon them, they focus on a national narrative in public education, uh, regardless of the side of the aisle that they're on. I'm I'm not trying to, to you know talk down to one party or another. I'm talking about. You, if we're following the national narrative of what's happening in New York, Chicago, LA, uh, or within you know a national teachers union, if we follow that narrative and then try to apply it to our state, which is what's been done quite a bit in, in recent sessions and recent years, you know those national ideas have trickled into the General Assembly's actions and their legislation and, and, and quite a few of the bills that we have to, you know, then, then deal with when they become law. So, you know, my, my goal would be, how can we change that narrative so that we can get senators and representatives to follow show me talking points rather than, and, and don't confuse me there, I'm not talking about a certain <laughs> institute, uh, but, but talking points for our local communities. Uh, I, I think that's really, really key, you know, and, and to kind of wrap that thought a little bit, you know, appointed actions, we need to embrace and support those who have and will support that narrative. There are representatives and there are senators that are willing to do that. And we've seen that even in this session that have stepped forward and, and taken action that, that is truly helpful, it takes conviction, uh, you know, because there's some risk at that level. And, and, you know, I say this jokingly, but I think, I think there's some reality to it is you could say, I could go out on a limb here and say that in the, in the state Capitol, bullying is legal. Uh, it's not in our schools. We have policies and procedures in place for that, but it is there. And there's a lot of scorn or ridicule. If someone steps out of that national narrative on what should be done in Missouri from a public education standpoint, but a show me state type of narrative, you know, for public education, I, I believe can be built uh, with our representatives and with our senators that then can be tied back to our local and regional constituencies and try our, our best. I know I'm talking in the ideal sense here, but we really have to get away from the dark money and the national narratives that people see uh, on, on shock value media that, that are really hurting our state in terms of public education. That's a home run swing, I know, I, uh, <laughs> but I believe it can make a difference uh, for public education. Roger, what, in, in reflecting on those things that you've just talked about, you know, what do you think all of this means for our future or the future of Missouri public education? You know, first of all, I, I want to always be an optimist. And we have seen so much change in the last few years, but we're still here and we're still providing, uh, again, what is the biggest piece of economic development, in my opinion, for Missouri, which is a quality public education for our students. And they become our future leaders. And as long as we foster that uh, and not get, uh, you know, overburdened with the pressures that are placed upon us from the legislative level, the funding level, if we always keep our eye on the prize of, of developing students. Uh, you know, my greatest joy as a superintendent, there were a lot of them, but uh, one in particular wasn't necessarily standing on the stage and, and shaking a hand of a recent graduate moving their tassel. It was doing so with the belief that they can make society better because they can and they will through our efforts. So, you know, I, I think that we have to try to make great strides in changing the narrative at the legislative level, but keep going back to here's the why that we need to keep in mind 
this is what why we're doing this. Because if we keep the why and why we're in this profession, whether it be starting out as a classroom teacher, the importance of a paraprofessional, uh, your other support staff, your building leaders, your district leaders, and, a set, and especially your classroom teachers, we're going to let that dominate our days and our weeks and our months and allow us to focus on changing that narrative with other stakeholders without having a poor influence or a bad influence on the classroom. Roger, you probably have answered this in a number of different ways, but I want to just by closing out our conversation today, ask you a question. And it's probably personal in nature, and but I find it's critical to understanding our collective why that you've been talking about. You know, you're in the fight of your life right now. You fight for your life. And uh, you, you've chosen to invest some time and energy to talking today about some of these issues. Just why is it that public school leadership and public education advocacy is so important to you that you would do that at this juncture? You know, some, some that are closest to me know that uh, while I was in school at, at the University of Missouri, I was a student assistant for the basketball team uh, with Coach Norm Stewart for four years. And, uh, you know, a wonderful relationship developed there. And, and you know, Coach taught me two things, uh, you know, and I, and I base most everything on my parents and then later in life, my in-laws as well. But Coach taught me two things that, first of all, you compete in life. And secondly, anybody can be first class. And those two notions have stuck with me. And it's what we do in public education. We teach young minds to compete. And we should be teaching them. And we are teaching them that they can be first class, no matter where they come from. And first class has a lot of different definitions. It's not just about, you know, lifestyle and wealth but it's about what they want to do and what they want to be good at. And we help foster that. And those are so powerful notions. So that, you know, but there's, there was, and, and coach Stewart was also one with, with so many quips and, and quick hitters that sometimes I'd shake my head and, uh, and just smile. But one day we were in a car together driving down I 70 to St. Louis and he looked at me and he said, you ever seen a turtle on a fence post? And as a probably 20 year old, I looked at him like, okay, where did this question come from? And I didn't even answer it because it was rhetorical in nature. In nature. And he said, how did it get there? He asked, how did it get there? And I've reflected on that little quip a lot over my lifetime and especially in these last few months, um, how did that turtle get there? How do we get students from kindergarten to third grade and reading proficiency to eighth grade or freshman year and, and, and proficiency in algebra and other core classes? And then how do we develop them into the paths that they identify for us through their high school years? so that they can make society better, they need help. If they're the turtle on the top of the fence post, we're the ones to help them get there. And that's probably what has taken a hold of me most in having time to reflect and be thankful and by no stretch give up. By every, every step and, and every uh, opportunity that's in front of me, and that also includes a lot of prayer, Dwayne, is there are reasons why we do what we do. And if we are willing to help others get to where they want to be, when, when they, maybe even they don't believe that, if we do that with the belief that we're imparting on them, they need to compete. We're going to give them the tools, but they've got to do it. But if they do that, they can be first class. Um, again, I've probably 
coming full circle back to becoming more idealistic like I was in my first years. And there's some pressures that are no longer there when you're retired, but it allows for some opportunities. And it, and it uh, you know, for me personally, I believe I'm going to win this battle uh, with a lot of help. And uh, that help is there. And uh, when that day happens, I see some other opportunities on the horizon. I'm excited to go after them. Roger, thank you for your inspiration, your leadership, and your insights into school leadership and public education advocacy. And we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today. We hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.